Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. I'm your co-host, Sean McTowell, Professor of Apologetics. On December 1st of 2021, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a landmark case that may may result in the overturning of the historic Roe v. Wade case from 1973 that decided the legality of abortion in all 50 states in the United States. We wanted to take some time and talk about the the argument that was made on both sides. This is going to be just with Sean and me. Uh, Even though the decision will not be handed down for probably six months from now, uh, probably in June of 2022 is when that will be handed down. But we gained some important indications about where the court might land and what some of the implications of that would be that we wanted to explore with you together uh, just so you're up to date on this really, really important case as it, as it concerns the, the sanctity of life for the unborn. Scott, we've both spoken out on this. We've both written on this, had a lot of conversations but you've really done a lot of consulting and high-level work in this area and tracked it about as well as anybody. So I'd love to throw some questions your way, and I think it may be helpful to start with a little background to this. And, of course, we got Roe versus Wade, 1973. We've got Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992, and then uh, some other more recent rulings. Give us a little background to understand what's happening today. Yeah, Um up and up until 1973, uh, there there was no federal law that governed the legality of abortion. Uh, those were essentially decided sort of state by state, and most states had prohibited abortion. Um, and as a result, uh, there was you know there's a lot of debate over the how what the instance of this was, but there were a lot of what were called back alley abortions done by you know, unqualified practitioners. I think that the number of those, I think, has been exaggerated yeah. a bit. In fact, maybe significantly exaggerated because we know that, I mean, statistically, still roughly uh, 90% of the abortions that were done prior to 1973 were done by licensed physicians in licensed facilities, but done illegally, mm. nonetheless. Uh, mm. The Roe v. Wade decision changed all of that. And in combination with the Dovey Bolton decision, what was handed down on the same day, the two of those together basically legalized abortion for all nine months of pregnancy. It's a myth, and it came out again in the oral arguments for this case. It's a myth to suppose that Roe v. Wade prohibited abortion for uh, just up until the baby is viable outside the womb. Uh, that, that, that wasn't true in 1973, and it's not true today. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have the, the controversy and the discussion about things like parth- partial birth abortions, which almost always happen in the third trimester. Hmm. 1992 was considered the best opportunity uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade, but the court upheld the, the basic findings of Roe v. Wade, allowed for some things like parental notification uh, and things like that. So uh, then there have been, there have been other challenges throughout the years that have tried to chip away at a woman's right to choose abortion. Most of those have been rejected by the courts, and the ones that have gotten to the Supreme Court have been actually relatively rare. Um, and this one uh, is based on the current one. is based is entitled Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health Organization. It's based on a 2018 
act in Mississippi that prohibited abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, okay? except for the sort of the standard exceptions, except for the life of the mother being in danger in, in cases of rape or incest. Okay? Now, the implementation of this law was blocked by a federal court on the grounds that it violated Roe v. Wade, which it most certainly does. Mm. Uh, and the so the final decision we expect on this sometime in June of 2022. At the same time, Texas has had an even more restrictive law that they've put in place called the Fetal Heartbeat Act, which basically out, outlaws abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected, which is somewhere between six and eight weeks of pregnancy, often before the woman even is aware that she's pregnant. That has a, a bit of a different twist to it, which I think the re, the re, this is the reason that the Mississippi law is the one being considered by the court. There's no, there's no enforcement pro, uh, procedure by law enforcement themselves in Texas. The way the law is enforced is by private citizens filing lawsuits against the different abortion providers and abortion facilities. So law enforcement in Texas has essentially abdicated their law enforcement function mm. and turned that over to private citizens. Mm. So this has been, you know, the, the advocates for the unborn have been waiting for an opportunity like this for an abortion case to actually get to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, advocates or uh, abortion, abortion rights advocates have been very fearful of this day coming because they are afraid that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, then a woman's right to choose to end her pregnancy will be rolled back all over the country. Uh, actually, in my view, neither of those things is necessarily true, uh, and we and we can we'll talk a little bit further sure. about what you know what what's the likely prospect here and what are the implications for that going forward. Does that does that help? Yeah, put that's, it in that's, that's a great background. If I was going to sum up this law, then is it fair to say that it uniquely presses into the stage of viability that Roe, which was twenty four weeks at Roe, if I remember correctly, so fifteen weeks. We're talking nine weeks before this, so two well, months Roe would, plus. Roe would be more at, at the, in the beginning of the third trimester. Okay, so that would be more like. What, 30, 32, 32, 28 weeks? Okay. My math, a little bit farther along. Okay. Than All that. right. So, it, it, in <clears throat> principle, then, there could not be any restrictions before viability. And this is significantly before viability. So, can, state right. rest can states restrict this, whether it's six weeks, Texas, 15 weeks uh, in this law in Mississippi? Is that at its heart what is at stake? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I think okay. I think it, there's more to it than that. Okay. Because Roe, before viability, and you're right that viability has changed, mm -hmm. which is which says nothing about the nature of the unborn child. It says everything about the state of medical technology. That's right. And and viability is different for different preborn children. And different parts of the world right now, there's different oh, there's a viability huge, There's a stages. huge distinction there. And in Roe v. Wade, they, they, the court did allow for some restrictions on abortion before viability. In the second, first and second trimester, 
things that were designed to to, uh, safeguard the woman's life and health. So they had to be in licensed facilities. They couldn't be just anybody hanging out a shingle and saying, I'm an abortion provider. Okay. Um, So that seemed to be a reaction to some of the back alley stuff that, that took place prior to 1973. So how is this different than other challenges that have come up in the past? Well, because it sets... The, the past challenges were more designed, I'd put it by a death by a thousand cuts. Okay. They were more more significantly incremental. Um, this one is more of a, a frontal assault mm. on abortion rights. Now, I wouldn't say it's a it's a total assault on that because there's still, you know, in the first 15 weeks, it's still basically abortion yes. on demand for any reason. And so the abortion, the abortion, uh, the, the the pro-life purists are not going to like this. But I think this is, you know, if if this were true and there were no abortion after 15 weeks, this would be a huge win for the unborn. Even though, even though it's not, you know, it may not be everything. Not be the ultimate. It's not. The, it's not everything. But doesn't this give precedent then, at least in principle? Either they deny this, or if they let it go through. We're allowing states to decide That's, to restrict during abortion rights during viability. So why couldn't other states in principle do the same? That, that would be – yeah, that would actually be I think the likely outcome if mm. if the decision goes in favor of, uh, of Dobbs and not the Women's Health Organization. If it's decided that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided – then what what's likely to take place is they would the court would do the same thing they did in the decision on assisted suicide in the late 1990s where they did not they did not say one way or another what the law of the land ought to be what they did is they said this is a matter for the states to legislate to reflect mm. the will of the voters in that particular state and so it would be it would be turned back to the states, and there's a good precedent with the assisted suicide challenges uh, to to lay that out. Now, in, interesting. I, I just a, a little while ago, before we before we were starting this, I read on my newsflash that California has just declared itself an abortion sanctuary. Wow! Just today, wow. Uh, and it's in. I think it's in anticipation of the court ruling next in June of 22, that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided and the matter is being left up to individual states. Okay. So I don't fully understand the particulars of the law, but when it comes to Texas, if somebody aids in an abortion, would this include somebody outside of the state aiding in somebody leaving their state and coming to Texas gets sued within Texas and California is saying if you help and you know this happens in Texas we will still protect you and keep you as a sanctuary from Texas is is that what it means that it's a sanctuary state no i no i don't think so i think what it means is that california's already declared itself what in terms of what will happen if roe v wade's overturned that California will always be a safe place uh, oh, okay. for women seeking abortions. So, they, so okay. they, for example, they wouldn't have a residency requirement 
for example, which oh, a lot of okay. states were. Right. So women women could come to California. Got it. And my guess is this this was not clear yet, but my guess is that it would also the state would also be willing to pay for the abortions for women who can't afford them. Oh, that's very interesting. It raises other ethical questions. Now, nobody there's no surprise that places like New York that recently on their judicial floor cheered some of the abortion rulings that some have said were even tied to like, you know, post-abortive births that were live. New York, California, it, it there's no surprise there that they would do this, but it seems like they're acting in anticipation of what's likely coming and putting their stake in the ground. Would you go so far as to say they think that's where it's going or they're just making it clear this a, is where California is regardless? I'd say it's a preemptive strike. A preemptive strike. That what that's what they're doing. Okay. Uh, that they are they are ensuring that California will lead the way in and hopefully other states will follow in becoming similar abortion sanctuaries. And okay. it's not it's not hard to envision what some of those other states might be. Um up and up and down, up and down sure. the coasts. Yep, Illinois, for example, um, mo- a lot of the blue states, I think, will follow suit. Uh, the red, the red states that we can probably draw a line from the, the Midwest through to the Southeast, wow. where a lot of a lot of those states would probably vote to s- either outlaw abortion or significantly restrict it. S- since you made the comparison, do you have a sense of since the ruling? I thought you said it was in the '90s with euthanasia. Ninety-seven. Ninety-seven. How this played out with states? Should how did that play out? And should we expect the abortion to play out if this ruling is the same? Well, the way it played out in the late '90s is that on the within a week after the Supreme Court ruled on that there were there were actually two assisted suicide cases, one from the West Coast and one from the East. Mm. Um, and they ruled that the state could not prohibit or the state was justified in prohibiting assisted okay. suicide. But it was also justified in allowing it if that was the will of their of their voters. Okay. So within a week, roughly thirty five or so states passed bills in their legislatures prohibiting assisted suicide. Oh, wow. And the numbers, the number of states that have adopted uh, procedures for for doing assisted suicide legally sort of happened, you know, more slowly and gradually, because you know pre- pretty soon some of the first states to do this were Washington, of course, which yep. was what yep. which, that's where the case originated. Um, you know, Oregon, or, or, Oregon. Right? Oregon or Oregon might have been first, but mm. then you know, California, Montana, Vermont, okay, uh, and there are a handful of others. But it's been kind of a it's been a slow trickle. I'm anticipating if Roe v. Wade is overturned, you'll have states quickly plant their flag. Yeah, and and I, my guess is within within three months, you'll have wow. you'll have most states declaring wow. themselves one one way or another. Well, it seems like politicians are going to have to as well. Certain politicians have said they're pro-life, but seemingly avoided certain votes and not almost have gotten away with simply saying they are, but without their feet being held to the fire. Now it's like you can't escape it. You've got to take a stand on this issue, which to me seems like maybe a good thing. I think that will be a good thing because 
at least you know in the legislatures that make the votes of their you know of their members public you know not every legislature does that oh interesting uh, we've we've since discovered <laughs> uh, but uh the, the ones where that's public then it will be very clear where mm. where people vote and where they stand i i think now that we're 3 days three decades past the 90s, and abortion is such a hotter topic, although it's ethically and philosophically tied to euthanasia issues. I think you're right, that it, people already know where they stand, and we're going to see you know, flags planted really quickly. Let's talk about some of the way the arguments are done. I, I have not listened to the ruling, not tracked it closely, but from what I hear is a reference to what's often called stare decisis, which is a decision that has been rendered in the past should still stand. Now, yes. part of me when I hear that, and, and I, I don't know, partly when I hear this, I think if that's what you're arguing, then you're really on weak grounds rather than pointing to the issue itself, personhood, the merits of the case. Yeah. If all you have is stare decisis, that seems to signal they have nowhere else to go, substantively speaking. Do you agree? Um, yeah. If, if but I, yes, but I but I think your your premise needs a slight amending. Amend it um, because <laughs> yeah, stare decisis is the no, the notion that you know settled precedent. Okay. St- stays settled precedent. Uh, the reason they argue that the precedent ought to stay settled, and this is pro-choice advocates who are arguing this, is because a woman's right to choose to end her pregnancy, they consider to be a fundamental right. Right. That is, okay. uh, that is above legislative processes okay. and procedures, and in their view, the court was, was entirely appropriate to decide, not only to decide it, but decide it in the way they did. Okay. The debate is, the real debate is whether this is a fundamental right or not. Because if, if your your point is right, if stare decisis is all that they have, then there are lots, uh, you know, lots of significant Supreme Court decisions that have been overturned. You know, Brown v. Board of Education, for yep. example, in the fifties, which which mandated separate but equal facilities, that's clearly been done away with. Uh, you know, Buck v. Bell in in the twenties, mm-hmm. which enabled, uh, you know, which Oliver Wendell Holmes, it was a mandatory sterilization bill. That was finally overturned, uh, where Oliver Wendell Holmes had said, "You know, three generations of imbeciles is enough." <laughs> right, and right. he's, you know, he was, I think, quite rightly excoriated for that later on. Mm-hmm. So the court has reversed itself on past decisions. So that the fact that it's a settled precedent, you know, m- you know, may be may may or may not be compelling based on what's underneath it. Okay. Now that the, you know, the, the pro life side has argued that uh, there's another fundamental right at stake, mm-hmm. and that's the life, the life of the unborn. The right to life, yeah. And so you know, they, they argue that mm. uh, you know, Roe v. Wade should have been left to the states. It was, it, was an, it was an inappropriate way for the court to be making law which should have been decided by the, by the voters in that particular state. Mm. I think what the decision— I think will come down to unless it's unless there's some technicality that it will be decided on that allows the court to punt the major decision down the road. Yeah, which would not be unheard of. The the decision will come down to how how the court weights a woman's 
autonomy over her own body with the right to life of the unborn. Okay, now let's let's come back to what the possible outcomes of this are and what you think may happen. But there's a question worth asking is why this case now? And I think it's because of with our last President Trump who nominated, uh, if I'm correct, three conservative-leaning judges, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, the balance of the court has shifted radically to 6-3. So you need five votes. That means if one person goes the other direction, whoever that may be, that would be conservative, then you can still win. So it seems to me that's why this is hitting right now. Is there anything else going on why this case sprung her right now? Because I kind of think pro-lifers in one sense, it's like they're smelling blood, so to speak. And I guess as I think about it, that's an ironic. Yeah, maybe not, <laughs> not the imagery I would not be using. The image. But... In fact, the, op- the opposite <laughs> of that. Yes. They're smelling the chance to resist the shedding of blood that's because right. of the numbers on the court. I think there's, there's no doubt that they the pro-life advocates see an opportunity here like we haven't seen in a, in a long time. Mm. And I think the fear is that, the, that if the Biden administration chooses to expand the, the number of justices on the Supreme Court, the window for this opportunity might be closed. Got it. Now, both, I mean, justices on both sides of this issue have maintained that they are not trying to politicize this. Mm. Uh, now, I think that both pro-choice and pro-life advocates recognize that the, the, the political and legal process is essential for, them, for both of them to accomplish their goals. So I, neither side has any particular qualms about bringing this into the arena of public policy. In fact, I, mm. I think it's, it's appropriate, you know, regardless of which side, which side you're on. I think that's a, if you see both of those as fundamental rights at stake, it's appropriate, I think, to bring those into the arena of public policy. Mm-hmm. It's just the question is, will it be at will, will the arena of public policy be at the at the big picture nationwide level, or will it be state by state by state? And one of the th- one of the things really interesting parts that uh, has been proposed is that actually the notion overturning Roe v. Wade and returning the uh, the task of of legislating this to the states actually could create less divisiveness than having it decided at the national level and having one result, regardless of which which way it's decided, one result shoved down the throats of a lot of people who oppose it. Hmm. So having having places where uh, across the country where your views are reflected, regardless of your view on this, I think actually has the possibility of making you know, decreasing some of the polarization that we see culture-wide. Depending on how this ruling goes, it's going to be interesting to see how it affects pro-life movements because it kind of feels like to me if this ruling comes down and it's not at least strongly favorable towards, you know, overturning Roe versus Wade to a degree, then a lot of conservatives are going to have to seriously rethink how important even is the Supreme Court and the presidency and politics itself. If this can't do it, I can imagine there'd be a whole lot of people who'd be disillusioned. Now, the Supreme Court justices don't care. They just have to rule their job is not at stake unless they're concerned about their reputation beyond that. I don't think they are. 
do in some ways we have to wait until the ruling comes to really know what follows but do you think a lot of pro-life strategies are even at stake with this ruling itself actually i think a lot of pro-life strategies changed you know two decades ago with with the because in, in 1992 that was considered to be the best shot you know to date and that I mean, from a from the standpoint of a pro-life person, that failed miserably. Mm. And the strategy changed at that point to be much more grassroots, much more sort of persuading one person at a time, one community at a time, uh, much more on the local level, much more dependent on technology, ultrasound technology. Yep. Um, and even st- stuff we're learning from forensics. Today, uh, DNA phenotyping is actually, a, I think it's, po- it's possible, if maybe our listeners aren't familiar with that, but it's a way forensic scientists have used this to take DNA to identify the physical features of what a suspect might look like and in conjunction with sketch artists get a, get a pretty reasonable picture of what a suspect would look like okay. without, a, without any, any physical description but just with a DNA sample. That's amazing. So, so if that could be done with somebody from a crime scene, why couldn't that also be done with the DNA from an unborn child? That's really interesting. I've never thought which, about that. Which just humanizes it in people's totally, minds. Yeah, totally humanizes it. So it's it. like the unborn um, – oh, my mind just went blank. When you see the image of the, the ultrasound mm-hmm. kind of on steroids, so to speak. That's one of the main reasons. Something like that. Oh, yeah. very, very so, interesting. So I, so th- that strategy's already been in place. Mm-hmm. Now, I think – the pro-life movement has long held that there's a legal strategy, but but I think long ago they stopped banking on that. Uh, and the you know the grassroots the pro-life grassroots movement has been, you know, d- depending on your your perspective on this, I mean, in my view has been extraordinarily successful uh, in making people think twice uh, about abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the, you know, now I'm you know I think. You know, there's some there's some lack of civility. I probably there's some, sure. you know, there's there's some ways that I wouldn't go about this uh, on the streets with abortion clinics. I know there's you know sometimes the yeah. Im- the images are not done in the best of taste. Sure, but I think that for the groups that that are that compassionately walk with women who have unwanted pregnancies uh, and explain to them what what's involved. Uh, you know those the anecdotal stories are undeniable mm. about the impact that they are having. So, I think okay. I'm, I'm not sure anything would is going to significantly change. It's just the, the location of those efforts will sh- switch from the federal level to different states. That that is really interesting to think about because if this gets overturned, then it's not like the pro-life movement is done. In fact. I don't know if you know the answer to this. Maybe we can't know. If you look at how many abortions are done in states like California and New York, how many would be in states that would likely turn it down, how many people would travel? Like in some ways we don't know. Do we even have a guess it would cut at 5%, 20%, 80%, or should we just not guess because there's just so many factors? I think one, one place where we can get a little bit of data from is from Texas. Uh, since Texas passed their – very restrictive abortion law, and granted, there mm-hmm. you know we've the enforcement part of that I'm not thrilled about. Sure, sure. Uh, but you know the number of abortions has been cut by close to fifty percent. Wow. 
within less than a year. Uh, so to say that making abortion illegal doesn't matter, I think empirically, that's that's a hard one to you know to, yeah. to counter based on what's going on in Texas. Seems to raise interesting questions about you know we talk about how politics is downstream from culture, but it also shapes the way people think about what is right and wrong. And so it's also a teacher, as Plato said. Oh, I think that's both of those right. are probably true. Yeah. I, in fact, that's why, I th- that's why I think even though – even if the legal strategy never prevailed, it's still been worth being involved in mm. Be- because – I mean Roe v. Wade had tremendous educational value mm. in terms of educating the culture about the pro-choice movement. So from a pro-choice ad- person's advocate – Pro-choice advocates' perspective, that Roe v. Wade did a a lot the lion's share of their education for them, mm. just by what the law is, and I think overturning it would have, I, I think would have similar educational value. Okay, so let's talk about what you think will happen. But I know I, I keep baiting our audience. But the last thing is what what. First, what are some possible outcomes, as best we can tell, of where this could go? Well, for one, the court could give um, give overwhelming weight to the doctrine of stare decisis mm. and keep Roe v. Wade intact uh, and take it out of the state's hands. Uh, that's that's a that's certainly a possibility. Um, the indications are so far from the oral argument. I think enough hints have been dropped to suggest that uh, that that might be a bit of a surprise. Okay. If that were the outcome, mm. uh, the second one is that they could overturn it and turn it back over to the states. In fact, if if it was overturned, it would. I think it would almost certainly be turned back over to the states for them to decide on their own. Mm-hmm. Then there there are a handful of different compromise decisions that could chip away at it but keep essentially keep the basic ruling of Roe v. Wade in effect. Now, I think what the Mississippi law has de- is designed to do, since it was a compromise itself, I think may have been designed to take some of these other compromises off the table and enable the court to rule on the fundamental issue itself. Or force the court, really, <laughs> to play its hand, right? Yeah. And not chip away at stuff. Right. So just, just so people understand the, the gravity of this, that means come this June, we could see abortion restricted after 15 weeks, according to this ruling, potentially after six yeah, that, weeks. That would just be in, in Mississippi. Oh, there. okay. In, so in, in, in Mississippi. Mississippi it so would... states may, states may okay. draw that line in different places. So Mississippi potentially upheld in Texas, and then very shortly after this, because rulings usually come out in June, within a matter of months, still in 2022, we could see serious restrictions on the so-called right to abortion across the U.S. like we haven't seen in almost 50 since, years. Since 1973. So really, since 1973, it'd be around 2023. It'd be about 50 years right. That's right. pretty unbelievable that people got to pause and think about the possibility of that, how radical. So if you had 
to bet. And I, I don't really have a sense in this. I heard Scott Klusendorf, one of my favorite pro-life speakers, uh, came here, did our MA Phil program at, at, at Talbot and, and Apologetics. He thinks the ruling is going to be six to three. He thinks it's going to be six to three. My only hesitation is when we talk about if it went the direction of stereotypes, is John Roberts has shown an inclination to not want to disrupt things and value precedent. And he's voted a few times. You know, this is his court on what would be deemed more liberal progressive positions. But I read Obergefell versus Hodges 2015 on the same sex marriage ruling. And he was as strong and firm against that ruling imaginable. So I don't really know. I suspect it's gone that way, but I'm not as confident yeah. as him. What do you say? I don't I I'm reluctant to speculate on either way. On, either way. Oh wow. Um, okay. I, I th- it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if Roe v. Wade were overturned. Wow. I th- I think there are there there have been a number of hints. That it could go in that direction, that that wouldn't be a big surprise. Um, and here's yeah. what, there's one other thing that I think is worth worth mentioning in this, and that is, you know, what what happens to adoption in the event that this is overturned? It's a great question because pro-choice advocates, I think, often downplay adoption as an alternative. Because in their view, it still sentences a woman to carry in a pregnancy for nine months. And I think sometimes pro-life advocates offer adoption somewhat simplistically, like it's this really easy thing for a woman to do to give up her baby for adoption. And I think the pro-choice advocates are right to tell us that, no, giving up a baby for adoption is the most, one of the most brutally uh, difficult things for a woman to do. But they, but we don't then press the next question: is what makes what is it that makes that so hard? And that the reason it's so hard is because pregnant women bond to the unborn children that they are carrying, right? In ways that you don't bond to things, mm-hmm. you bond to persons like that. You have relationship with a person, and I think that's why you you know, we know we don't we don't lose a lot of sleep over selling a car like we do a woman who gives up a baby for adoption mm. because because persons are unborn children in the womb are not property things they're not just a collection of parts they're mm. persons with souls and essences uh, that are made in the image of God and i think that that i i think what, what how we view adoption will be i think will be a very interesting outcome in the aftermath of this so i'm going to go on a limb and there's a lot of ifs here so if Roe versus Wade is in fact overturned and if rulings come down that restrict abortion in a lot of states and we have a significant number of babies that needed to be adopt, adopted because right now we don't have enough babies to match the families That's who want correct. to adopt. If that happens, the church is going to step up. Well, I, it, I have we need to. full we, – we, I have I will I will stake my life on that not everybody but I know a lot of Christians will say we will sacrifice and we will take these kids. I believe that. Now that's a lot of steps down the road. It is. But but remember it's it's newborns. Yeah. that are in the highest demand also. Mm. And the lowest supply. Mm. Um, and the early the early church did it themselves. 
Mm. You know, it wasn't victims of abortion, it was victims potentially of infanticide. That the early church, who which was dirt poor themselves, stepped up and adopted, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these kids who were being left to die at the roadside by ex- for ex- from exposure, or otherwise victims of infanticide because their families couldn't support them. And the, and the church stepped up, even though they didn't really have the means to support them either. But they did that because this is this is what this is what the church did mm. at the time. This is what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. You know, one of the most meaningful experiences ever when I was teaching high school full time was a former student of mine came back. She graduated from high school before I started Biola. And she came to visit me after school and said, hey, you know, Mr. McDowell, good to see you. I didn't know if this interested you or not, but last year while we were studying pro-life, there was uh, one of my friends was pregnant in high school. And I started walking her through the stuff we were mm-hmm. learning in class. And she goes, I can't remember how long. And she goes, just a few weeks ago, this baby was born. And I thought, maybe you wanted to know. And I was like, maybe you thought I wanted to know? (laughs) And I was like, this kid now is, I don't know, 15 plus years old. Like this ruling that could come down could mean people having life that otherwise would not. We've got to pray for this and be on our knees. Just, you know, the Bible says the king, obviously not talking about a Supreme Court ruler, but I think the broad principle applies. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Let's pray for justice and pray that the ruling is right because I told, you know, I was having a conversation with my kids and those of you listening, I'd, I'd encourage you to just share this with your family I said to my kids when we were driving to school just recently during the ruling, I said, you guys probably don't realize this, but in your lifetime, the debates taking place right now before the Supreme Court could be, historically speaking, some of the single most, if not the single most important case ever. Let's pray about it. And we just you know, prayed as a family on the way. Yeah. But I'd love for families to be, Christian families in particular, praying for this ruling. And you know what? If it doesn't go the way we want it to, God is sovereign yeah. and God is good. We're not going to give up. We're going to keep fighting for life. And I think one of the things, if if our listeners are not aware of it, uh, they should know that a part of Biola University's theological statements is a very strong statement that is is overtly pro-life uh, and maintains that you have a person from conception forward, and that we you know that we oppose attempts to take innocent life from the very beginning of conception all the way up mm. until the end. That's part of our formal theological statements that all our all our faculty uh, and a lot of our a lot of our staff uh, sign on to as a result of being employed here. Mm. So we've Biola's taken a pretty strong stand in support of the unborn, even though you know culturally. Uh, you know, supporting the unborn is not 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 really one of the one of the culturally cool social justice causes. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Because I've, it? you know, I don't I don't I don't often hear uh, when we when in the broader culture we talk about the oppressed and the marginalized. I don't often hear the unborn being included in that. Mm. You know, I when I was a doctoral student, we had a, a fellow doctoral student who didn't have any particular religious convictions, but. Uh, he had started dating a student who he in the class that he was TAing for, and we had, a number of us had been talking to him. We befriended him, and they they sort of fell hard for each other. And turned out they were engaged, and she was pregnant. Wow! 
one Monday morning, we came into classes together with him, and he had this crestfallen look on his face, like his world had just collapsed. And we just said, hey, what happened? And he said, over the weekend, my, my fiancé called off our engagement and informed me that she had ended the pregnancy. Oh, my goodness. And then he looked at us and he, said, and he said, I hate to admit this, but you pro-life guys are right. Wow. He said, you are right because that, that was my child Holy in God. the womb, and I didn't have any say over it. Mm. Uh, and he was, he was absolutely devastated by this. Mm. Uh, and it just, it, it just, you know, it, it, it sort of hit home again that this is, this is not only a, a biblically oriented conviction. Uh, you know, people outside Christian faith have the same view of the unborn. This, you know, this, mm. uh, you know, my fellow doctoral student sort of, you know, he, this painful experience that, that gave him that perspective, and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And I think it's also important, too, that we, you know, that we have a, we have a heart of compassion for the women who have unwanted pregnancies. Amen. And, you know, do, doing more as a, as a culture and as a community to, to support women who have unwanted pregnancies? Who, uh, who would be, you know, who would be raising more children than, than they had in mind, uh, and providing better, you know, better resources for women who are in some of these really tough situations. And I, and I, you know, this is the decision to end a pregnancy is is rarely an easy one. It's weighty, and and as it should be. And I commend the pro-choice movement for recognizing that it is a weighty, it is a moral mm. decision. Um, but I think as, as a university, and I know the two of us, you know, we just have a fundamental difference on how you would weight the interests of the, of the pregnant woman versus the interest of the unborn child. Mm. You know, as we talk about this, I'm sure there's some people listening that it can bring up some pain like the story yeah. you shared. We had Victoria Robinson on. It's probably been a couple of years ago now sharing her story of having an abortion and how it just haunted her for years but the forgiveness she found in the person of Jesus Christ. So I know these debates can be public, they can be political, and we and they, can forget— And they can be personal. And they can be personal. We can forget that we're dealing with real people here. So let us speak truth boldly, but with compassion. Uh, I've been amazed at how many people in my life I've discovered over time have some kind of experience with abortion that I wouldn't have expected, just naivete or whatever assumptions— and so if you're out there and you have experience with this, it's not the unforgivable sin. God loves you so much and uh, offers his forgiveness to you and to all of us and wants to, you know, wash us clean. So that is at the heart of the gospel for sure. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you will be in prayer for this upcoming ruling. Talk with your families. Graciously, kindly have conversations with your neighbors. And let's follow this story. So ultimately, it's all said and done. We can live a culture of life within the church and defend life as well. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversation on faith and culture. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.